0: I've told Mr. Weston this story, so don't, he wouldn't mind me telling you. He and I've told a few of you when he called and suggested that uh, he, he opened the conversation with, "Well, how are you, John?" And I thinking, "Well, Mr. Weston, I'm doing real well, but I'm not on your speed dial. Uh, why, you know, so you're not calling about my my well-being necessarily." And uh, he uh, he said, "Well, John, you've been there about seven years." And I thought, if I knew where, I could complete the next sentence. <laughs> and, uh, he did not ask if I wanted to leave Florida. I you know, I could have answered no to that, not knowing what all that meant. But he didn't ask that. He just said, would I come to uh, to Charlotte? And uh, the answer to that is an easy yes. It was really interesting. He said, well, talk it over with your wife. And I said, well... My wife has family there. She's going to wonder what the delay is. (laughs) So, yes, I don't need I I can speak for her in this case. Not always, but in this case, yes. So, uh, But, brethren, it is very nice to be here. It's a privilege. Uh, My wife and I are very happy about the chance to come to headquarters. Headquarters has a certain aura about it for all of us, all of those that are in the field, and some of you have been there and understand that. We look at headquarters uh, in a special light, it's a certain aura about headquarters, and we're very happy to be here and to be a part of, of your this congregation and part of you as, as God's family. It's, a, it's been a, a little bit of a journey. It took three visits to find a place to live, and uh, we have uh, managed to do that, still living amongst the boxes somewhat, but uh, making headway. Back in the middle of 2018, I think it was July, that a sermon was given by Dr. Winnell and was sent out to the field, and he asked the question of, what is the greatest or most important thing you have ever built? And it obviously fostered thoughts, I'm sure, in your minds, because it was listened to not only here, but it was sent out to all the churches. And I don't think it was a must-play, but in many cases those, those sermons are heard either as a, a DVD or they're on the web. And the title of that sermon was The Importance of Character. Now, his obvious point was that building or developing righteous character, godly character, is the most important thing you and I can build or achieve in this life. You know, one cannot see character. We can only see what it produces. We can see the results of someone having character. And then toward the end of the sermon, as he was wrapping up the sermon, he encouraged those here at headquarters, and again, subsequently, all of those that have heard it since, to do several things. And one of the items he referenced was to study Psalm 119. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us here have read Psalm 119. Maybe we haven't studied it, because I think normally we read the Psalms, and we don't always go into a, an in-depth study of, that particular, of any of those Psalms. We don't really study them, and sometimes they sing a, may seem a little repetitious, but we must remember they are Psalms. They were meant to be sung. And as in even our songs today, there are repetitions, repetitions, especially the refrains at the end of a verse or whatever. They were meant to be sung. And sometimes in a sermon, I shouldn't say sometimes, but any given sermon, uh, there are one or two or three things that resonate with each of us as we listen to what's being said. Things that strike our interest, remind us of changes we need to make, but things that uh, we take very much to heart. And that was the case in that particular sermon Dr. Winnell gave on Psalm 119 that uh, resonated with me. Now, I must add that it didn't immediately resonate. Because I listened to the sermon, my wife and I, when we would go from living in uh, West Palm Beach and We'd go over to the Tampa congregation, which met in Plant City or meets in Plant City, and we would listen to CDs on the way to and from services to try to to stay up, stay current on those things. And I'm not sure when I when uh, when we listened to it, but I remember that he did mention Psalm 119 in that first time I listened to it. Now I don't know exactly what I thought that particular day, but it wouldn't surprise me necessarily to think. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I've read Psalm 119. In fact, I've actually studied pretty thoroughly Psalm 119. And you hear that and you think, okay, I've done that and go on to the next suggestion. But good thing I listened to that sermon again. And when he got to the summary and he mentioned Psalm 119, I thought, I should do that. That's something I can do. And hopefully we're listening when we hear sermons that we hear things that we can do. Many sermons are teaching sermons and there's not a lot of necessarily exhortation to do something. But sometimes we're giving, given something to do and we should be listening for that. And I thought, well, he's giving me something to do if I only would do that. So I determined to, to do that, to study it carefully uh, and I think more thoroughly than I had uh, ever done prior to that time so this afternoon i'm going to share with you some of the highlights of my study of psalm 119 and ask you to think about meditate about how these points relate to developing righteous character now i didn't develop this sermon in, in, with the intent of it being a passover type sermon but it certainly some of the points can be applied in that direction So if you want a title for the sermon today, just put Psalm 119 and Principles of Righteous Character. One of the, in in reviewing this, uh, I chose to look at a commentary. I uh, have several commentaries, as most of us ministers do. I remember when I, in moving here, the uh, moving company asked me, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a minister. And he said, Oh. Lawyers and Ministers, not not that we're too too Uh, (laughs) well-connected, lots of books. (laughs) So, yes, there are a number of books, But uh, and I do uh, like the Adam Clark commentary very much. So just in getting into Psalm 119, a little bit of background, it is written as an acrostic, and I'm assuming that many of you know what that is, but just in case, uh, an acrostic... Is using all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There were and are 22 of them. And Psalm 119 is divided into 22 sections. Each section contains eight verses. And this, you know, if you're good with math, that means there's 176 verses in this one Psalm. And each of those eight verses in each section begin with a, the same letter of the alphabet. And it's in alphabetical order. So the first section, the Hebrew letter is Aleph, and so all of those eight verses begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph. And, well, again, it's a psalm. We we sing much of this, and and we'll be talking about one section in particular where we read the whole whole section. And I would imagine in Hebrew, having those uh, verses begin with the same letter, probably has a, uh, a musical effect on how it's, uh, how it's read and, or, and sang and understood. So they're in the, in the order of the Hebrew alphabet. And Psalm 119, in general, treats uh, the happiness and the blessings that come from obeying God's law. Prayers and requests are made for wisdom and understanding and strength to be faithful in obeying God's law. Now, in analyzing this particular psalm, and it's been done by, by many scholars, uh, and, and again, based on what Adam Clark wrote, the psalm shows that there are ten words that are consistently used to reference this revelation from God, this, his law. Uh, I'll, I'll list those words for you if you want to write them down. Uh, but You can also look it up later but the word law would obviously fit commandments, testimonies, precepts, word, ways, truth, judgments, statutes, and righteousness. Now, ten words. And if, We immediately can see there is a connection between all of them. And one or more of those words is used in every verse of Psalm 119 except one. That's verse 122. However, there are five other verses where one of those words may be used, but it's not in the context of actually representing God's law. It could be... that uh, a judgment is made, a decision was made, as opposed to representing uh, generically God's way of life and God's law. And also of note, it's not in in the heading of the Psalm 119, it is not designated as a psalm composed by David. Uh, Based on the Bibles that are out there, uh, generally speaking, about, uh, I think, just a little in excess of half of the Psalms are actually credited to David, and however, there are many scholars who take issue with that, and that's neither here nor there, but Psalm 119 is not specifically designated as a Psalm of David. However, uh, many scholars look at it as a good chance that David did write it because the affairs and the events and the attitudes that are uh, discussed in Psalm 119 certainly reflect david's life and so along with the possible possibility that it was written by david then it's uh, viewed as perhaps it was uh, based on future writers future psalmists, as using perhaps notes or uh, uh, memoranda for that he had that he had uh, composed prior to that time so just a little bit of background on that part so i'll be going through several points and None of these things are, will be revelations, brethren, to us, but they are fundamental points that I, I found enlightening in going through Psalm 119, because it's, there's so much there. It's so, uh, so deep and so rich. But first point is God's Word is truth. Now, all of us know that. So I want to just give you, and I will give you, in each, for each point, I'll give you several references where that point is brought out, several verses. Uh, I won't give you all of them. Uh, if you're a user of uh, any digital Bible aid, Blue Letter Bible, you can uh, create your own list very easily based on certain words. So truth, in this case, was the, the one I used for pulling up uh, one of these points. So, Psalm 119, so since it's all Psalm 119 in almost every case, we're going to be stay in this particular Psalm almost entirely. There will be three or four other scriptures brought in, but so I'll just give you the verse and try to do that. Verse 151, he says, you are near, O Lord, or O Eternal, and all your commandments are truth. Now, we, again, we know that, we believe it, but he... Points out in the, the writer, whether it be David or another psalmist, that this, uh, in the context, it's around it, the verses around it, it's using this premise that all of your commandments are truth, so therefore, thus and such is the case. He mentions in verse 140, he says, your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. Very pure. Now, when you read those words very pure, there are multiple ways of looking at those words. But I think it also means there's no dross, no dross in God's word. There are no impurities. Much like we refine precious metals, and as we go through the refining process, you get some degree of purity. Now, you can have an 18 karat ring that has a certain amount of impurities, or you could have a twenty four carat, you know, and it's more pure. What he's saying here is God's word is very pure. There is no impurity in it. Then smelting, if you will, of the refinement of God's word is produced an absolutely pure way of life and word and law. Verse one hundred seventy two, one that we in many cases have committed to memory. It says, my tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. So again, an example there where two of those ten words appear in one verse, commandments and righteousness. Then in Psalm, or in verse 160, he says, the entirety of your word is truth. And again, that's a bit repetitious from that one I mentioned a minute ago about being very pure. But the entirety of your word is truth, and that brings up, I won't turn there, but what we have also committed to memory in many cases in Psalm, or in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, we should know what that says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, And for instruction in righteousness. All scripture is God breathed. So the entirety of God's word is truth. Then in verse 105. Verse 105. He says your word is a lamp to my feet. And a light to my path. It shows us the way to go. It shows us how we should be living. It's going to help us to make decisions about what we should do each and every day again why we must include bible study in our lives because that word reminds us of what we should be doing and how we should live and will help us make decisions as we go through the day and then in verse 86 he says all your commandments are faithful they persecute me wrongfully Help me. He says God's word, his commandments are faithful. Now, what might that mean? The word faithful has this ring to it. We we know that it has to do with righteousness. But I think there God is telling us that his way of life, his commandments always work. We have a choice of what to do. It's right or wrong and what's going to be the consequence. Uh, Is there a way to short? shorten our path and maybe cut corners and not obey God and it turn out well? Uh, Maybe a classic example, if we have a financial issue uh, for most of us, uh, what repository of money might we have? (laughs) Second tithe? Uh, The question comes up, I can borrow from second tithe and pay it back later. And how much does that make? If you're having trouble making ends meet, when are you going to repay it? (laughs) You're looking for some unexpected blessing that might allow that, but no, it it should remind us that doing something wrong is not the way to solve a problem. God's law, His commandments, are faithful; they always work. Now, that we use that as one of our, we in our, I think our booklet we discuss. Uh, The seven proofs God exists, and in the old booklet in the Worldwide uh, Church of God, we talked about God being the creator, designer, sustainer, lawgiver, life giver, who answers prayer and fulfills prophecy. And I believe in our literature right now, we also use uh, the point number seven is, this way of life works. I think that's what God is telling us here, that all my commandments or all your commandments are faithful. That we can believe right down, you know, to our soles of our feet that doing what God says to do will bring the right result. And He says your word, God's word is truth. And just to ask as we, as we, maybe as we approach Passover, do you and I believe that literally every verse is God breathed? And therefore it's all worth reading. Uh, including all of the begets and begets and begets. (laughs) But understanding that, and where it fits into the relevance of any given situation at time, that every verse is inspired by God. And we should study that because we know that is the truth. All right, second point. Is love of God's law. You know, we... Here often, I'm assuming here, I have not heard it here that I can recall, but I've heard it on many occasions in an opening or closing prayer. We talk about we love your law or we love God. Well, you find this in many cases in in Psalm 119. In verse 97, and I will turn there, because I want to read the entire section. This is for the Hebrew letter mem, for what that's worth. But in verse 97, it says, Oh, how I love your law. We sing this hymn. We sing it more of the the King James Version wording than as opposed to the New King James. But, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, and they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. Understanding comes from obedience. We often refer to Psalm 111, verse 10. You can put it in your notes if you like. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, that as we obey and the more carefully we obey and the more obedient we become, then God is going to give us a greater understanding of his way of life. And when we're called, and you may remember this happening, and God revealed a certain amount of truth to you, and you began to follow that, then he would give you more understanding. And over time, you reach a point where you decided and God called you to give you that understanding, you could commit your life to God. And that truth, though, goes on, that as we more carefully obey our God, he gives us deeper and deeper understanding, helps us all become, I say, more gifted, if you will, in his law and his precepts. He says, I understand more than the ancients, in verse 100, because I keep your precepts. Verse 101, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. Then how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So how sweet is that? Well, if you take a big spoonful of honey, <laughs> you figure it's really sweet, and it can be so cloying that uh, you kind of pucker up a little bit. So there's an analogy here. He, the writer saying that God's word is so much sweeter, so much better than even honey in my mouth. And if you know if you like honey, a, it should uh, resonate with how we should feel about God's law. We should love his law. And then in verse 104, he says, Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. But this, verse 197, how I love your law. And in verse 16, he says, I will delight myself in your statutes. What what do you and I find delightful? What, what is yours and my favorite thing to do? we have a hobby? Something that we really enjoy doing? Ask ourselves, do we delight and get great joy and pleasure out of studying God's word? The writer here again, and very likely many of these things do sound very much like David. But I will delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Which, if we're not going to forget God's word, that means we have to keep studying it because if we don't study, you and I will forget. We've had a good number of people, far more than we care to count, who forgot God's way of life because they forgot studying God's word. How does one forget to keep the holy days? How did, how did, have those brethren from the past managed to just somehow forget those days because they stopped studying and stopped observing them, and the understanding went away? In verse one thirteen, he writes, "I hate the double-minded, but I love your law," implying he was not double-minded about that. That is unequivocal. God's law is truth. It's the way of life. It works. And there's no doubt about that, and I hate the double-minded, those who are ambivalent about what to do in any given situation, and they're willing to compromise on occasion, depending on the circumstance and the pressure. Then also in verse 165, he says, Great peace have those who love your law. And we often quote this from the, the old King James, about nothing shall offend them, New King James says, and nothing causes them to stumble, because they are rooted in God's law. They love it, they study it, they follow it and observe it, and therefore they don't go aside. Point number three, whole heart for the words. The lesson is built around the words whole heart. Verse 2 of this, the Psalm, and we'll come back to this at the end of the sermon. It says, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. And before I get to another comment, I want to just read several of these. In verse 10, he says, With my whole heart have I sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 34, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. So help me understand why it's good for me. Convict me that the result will always be good. Yes, I shall observe it with my whole heart, with our whole being. That When we commit to God to observe his way of life, to follow his law, that we do it without reservation, without qualification. There are no... Conditional statements to that. We do that wholeheartedly. Verse 58. says, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful unto me according to your word. Similar statement in verse 145. He says, I cried with my whole heart. Hear me, O Eternal. I will keep your statutes. He cried out, cried out with God to his, his whole heart. When I hear those words, I, along with another section I'll come to later, I hear Dr. Meredith to seek God with our whole heart to put our whole being into this. And as he's referenced, and many of us have as well, that in our prayers, Mr. Armstrong would say that what Concerned him most is whether or not people were putting their heart into their prayers. And the writer, the psalmist, perhaps David, is saying, I will do these things with all of my being. And we have other scriptures talk about loving God with our whole heart, our mind, soul, our being. And you find that element of righteous character as part of this psalm. And you can find other verses where these... The particular phrase is used. Point number four, something that just comes out in so many ways in this particular psalm, is about prayer. And not only in this psalm, but it, it's, it seems uh, it somewhat permeates the book of Psalms. But in verse 55, in talking about prayer... says, I remember your name in the night, O Eternal, and I keep your law. Uh, Could be thinking about maybe the late evening after sunset, it gets dark. But I think the tone of that is, I remember your name in the night. That it's maybe some nights we don't sleep so well. Maybe we have a little bit of insomnia. What are we going to do with that spare time, if you will? Like to go to sleep, but we can't. Maybe... We can spend our time not counting sheep, but reciting the Ten Commandments or the Scriptures or just to the points of things that that we know out of the Bible. In verse sixty two he says, At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you. I (laughs) I don't remember getting up at midnight. (laughs) Maybe maybe you have. Wouldn't hurt. And if you can't sleep, get up, go read the Bible and maybe pray and ask God for some help right then, as well as going be able to go to sleep, get some rest. But sitting midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you. Maybe not any particular need, just a chance now I'm awake uh, or I've awakened. And I'll take this time to thank God for what happened today or for even knowing his truth and even being called Verse 147, and I'm sure we do this, says, I will rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help, I hope in your word. We get up early, depending on our work schedules, and if we have to go to work early, we get up often before the dawning of the morning And one of the first things we do is to spend some time on our knees before our God and crying out for help for the oncoming day. And maybe the stresses of yesterday are still with us, and we know what we're going to face. In many cases, we don't know what the day holds for us. Whatever it is, known or unknown, we realize we are going to need his help to go through with those things. In verse 148, He says, My eyes are awake through the night watches, that I may meditate on your word. Verse 148 sounds a little deliberate to me, that my eyes are awake through the night watches. In the Jewish community, Hebrew community, the the night watches were divided into four-hour segments, and they would start at at, uh, 6 in the evening and go until 10 o'clock, what we call 10 o'clock. Then it would go from 10 o'clock until 2 and then from two until six in the morning, I think the Romans changed that later on and how they managed that. But here the writer is saying, "My eyes are awake through the night watches, or through the watches." I think it's implying that there are times that he, that there was a need to simply spend a lot more time talking to God about. What was needed about his personal needs or the situations we had the nation it was let's say this particular part of it was composed in, in uh, during the Babylonian captivity which in many cases where some of the Psalms that are dead or say uh, assigned to David many of the scholars and commentators say no that's not the case it was these were written during the time of the captivity or after the captivity when they got back to Jerusalem and we're not sure one way or the other in those cases, but here this writer is saying, I'm awake, I stay awake extra time in order to present my pleas to my God. In verse 164, he says, seven times a day I praise you. Now often when you see this word seven times or the word seven, it just means many times. It could be Exactly seven times here is what's meant, but usually it means many times. And many times a day, I praise you. And again, a reminder that besides asking God for the things that we need, it's very appropriate to simply take a few seconds, not very long necessarily, to thank God for any given thing that just happened, something good. And sometimes we use this phrase, well, thank God. And it's it's almost like it's some sort of a uh, playing a tape, <laughs> a phrase. But that phrase should have meaning and purpose. We should not say it simply by rote without thinking about what we're saying. But he says, seven times a day, I praise you. I We should many times a day acknowledge God and give him praise. I know even in the sermon last week. By Mr. McNair, he talked, to you. the word praise has been sort of uh, possessed uh, by those that maybe misunderstand it and misuse it. But it's certainly a good word for us if we use it with the right purpose in the right way. And the scripture that I won't turn there again, but Psalm, 1, or Psalm 55, verse 17, one that we refer to quite often about evening and morning. And at noon, I will pray. And cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Now, maybe most of our prayers, depending on how our homes are built and how much privacy we have, we may pray silent prayers, or we may pray quiet prayers. But I think it tells us here, the way it's worded, it says, every morning, noon, and night, I will pray and cry aloud, Go we'll talk to God where He says, and He shall hear my voice. Now He doesn't need us to mouth the words, literally. He can't hear he can he understands and knows our thoughts. But the writer's telling us that it's part of conveying to God some of the intensity, some of the hard and strong feelings we have about our request, or even about our thanksgiving. But prayer permeates the whole the whole book of Psalms and certainly Backed up by these verses in Psalm 119. One of the things that jumped out at me in, in, in this study were the words, your servant. So point number five is, your servant. With those words. I'll give you several of them because there's quite a few. In verse 17, it says, deal bountifully with your servant that i may live and keep your word so it may not be just physical blessings but how god resolves situations thoughts he gives us he inspires through his holy spirit to be dealt bountifully mercifully abundantly by your uh, with your servant that i may live and still keep obeying you keep your word Verse 49 is, remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. That's like reminding God what he promised you and me. To remember what you've told me through the Bible. You said thus and such. And then he adds here that upon which you have caused me to hope. We take God at his word. God can't lie. So we take God at his word. He says, you, you promised this. And as your servant, I've given my life to you. As your servant, I'm claiming that promise. You know, Mr. Ames talks about that quite often. Of claiming God's promises. And here this phrase is given. Remember remember your promise. This is what you inspired and so remember that, because I have hope in my life, because I can—I've read and studied what you've promised, and that's why I've chosen to uh, to follow this. You called me to understand that I have given you my life. I am your servant. In verse sixty-five, he says, "You have dealt well with your servant, O Eternal, according to your word." Thank you for keeping your promise. Thank you for keeping your word. When we do claim often, verse 124, deal with your servant according to your mercy. And we need mercy every day. And Hebrews tells us that God is the father of mercies. Deal with your servant according to your mercy. You promised to be patient, slow to anger. Would you please remember those promises and deal with me accordingly and teach me your statutes? Verse 135, he says, Make your face shine upon your servant. And teach me your statutes. How many of us can remember. What it was like to have your mother or your father. Just give you this adoring smile at something you accomplished. Or what you had done, what you had said. Where their face was sort of shining upon you. This note of of great approval. Satisfaction, just a certain amount of. The right kind of pride. That's my son, or that's my daughter. That's what God is saying here. He's asking God to make your face to shine on me. Take care of me. Watch over me. Encourage me. Let me know that you're happy, if you will, put it this way, that I am one of your servants. And then he says in verse 125, I am your servant. Now, we know what Paul says in the New Testament. He talks about that. He says I'm, we are to be bonded slaves of Jesus Christ. But I think we have the right, brethren, we go before God in our prayer and just say, God, I, I'm your servant. I have given you my entire life. I'm trying to be Everything, give everything I've got into your hands, and I'm gr- trying to grow in that direction. We all, as human beings, we have shortcomings and we have failures. But we can go to God and say, I'm yours. Let's go to verse 94. Turn over there. I'd like to read a couple of verses here. Verses 94 through 96. He says, I am yours. Save me. He's pleading with God to watch out for him. For I have sought your precepts. I'm trying to obey you. Take care of me. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. But I will consider your testimonies. I have seen the consummation of all perfection. But your commandment. Is exceedingly broad. Now, verse 96 is, I think, a little bit complex. I've seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. It's, uh, what's the bridge to there, to those two phrases? I think the writer is telling us, look, I have seen the very best that man can do, and it really isn't all that great. I've seen the consummation of perfection. What is humanly possible to do? Not all that great in reality, but he says, your commandment is exceedingly broad. It is limitless. What God has for you and for me, even in this life, we enjoy things that have gotten to do things that many of us or most of us have certainly didn't even imagine we would get to do. I mean, I grew up in the hills coal mining area of West Virginia. I think sometimes I look back and I think, I, I, boy, that's a long way from here. <laughs> God has given me a different life when I came out, of my, when Jung moved out of that area. But just looking back at our past, many of us can recognize that God has given us a limitless life right now in many ways. But he's offering us a limitless life for eternity. And the writer saying here that I've seen what man can do, but it's, it's not good enough. But God's way will offer us an eternal life. And he says, I am yours. I'm your servant. We have the right to go before our God and ask him for intervention and claim that I am yours. Now, that does beg the question, how confidently can you and i say that if we have personal problems and we're repenting of them we can say that if we're careless maybe not so confidently but if we have really surrendered ourselves completely to our father then we can go and make that claim do this for me because i am yours right point number six And if Mr. Ames listens to this, maybe I'll get a reprieve. (laughs) Point number six, if you want to make the connection, is perseverance. (laughs) Now, I I hope you all know what that, why that's important. (laughs) Why it's the sixth law of success. Perseverance. (laughs) So, Mr. Ames, I made this point number six. Really interesting, the verses that are, relate to this. Verse 51. The proud have me in great derision. Some of the comments that was made in the sermonette about people thinking we might be a little odd if we had blood on our, our doors, or how the Egyptians looked upon the Israelites, the scoffers. The proud have me in great derision yet I do not turn aside from your law. I don't let those that persecute me bring me to a point where I'm willing to compromise. I can remember a friend of mine and a fellow student at Ambassador College meeting him a number of years later after we had graduated and meeting him just perchance uh, at a parking lot And part of the conversation was he looked at me and he says, do you still believe all of that stuff? This was 1984, I remember the year. And he was referring to the stuff was all the things that he and I had been taught in college and in the church. And he was scoffing at that because it was just so much stuff. He says here, the proud have me in great derision but yet I will not turn aside do not turn aside from your law we're going to persevere through the persecution or through the issues verse 61 the cords of the wicked have bound me but I have not forgotten your law and it could be that if we took that literally of being bound we mean the cords of the wicked have bound me perhaps that could be a physical, Encounter with someone, but I don't forget to do what's right. Verse 81, and I'll read, excuse me, three of the verses here, three or four of the verses. Verse 81 says, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. He's talking about here about being spiritually exhausted and physically he needs deliverance. But I hope in your word, your words give me a confident attitude toward being rescued. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, when will you comfort me? He's looking for an explanation of why am I experiencing these difficulties. Why are things so bad? I'm searching your word. My eyes fail me. For I have become like a wineskin in smoke. Again, an analogy of being all shriveled up emotionally and spiritually. Dealing with a very difficult situation. Yet, I do not forget your statutes. It doesn't matter how severe the trial may be. I'm not going to let it get me to the point I won't persevere. I'm going to hang on. I'm going to keep pleading with God to give me the deliverance that he's promised. Verse 84, how many are the days of your servant? Remember God, physical life short. Give me a reprieve. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? And that's one of those places where the word is used. It's not not in context of God's law and the judgment. Then in verse 87 They almost made an end of me on earth. They almost took my life. But I did not forsake your precepts. God tells us there we are willing to face these things that will challenge our dedication. They will challenge our commitment. And we read these verses and we realize that God does promise to see us through those things in verse 109 he says my life is continually in my hand it's a phrase for being in danger my life is in danger yet i do not forget your law absolute refusal to compromise and i you know, when i read those words about not letting anything or anyone deter him or her from obeying God's way of life. Again, I, I I hear Dr. Meredith. He would close many of his sermons where he would say, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't ever quit. Hear this word. I won't let any of these things remove me from following your way of life. And of course, the commitment we make at baptism is to simply not... Let anything take us away from God's truth and God's church, even our own lives. Right, point number seven, the plea to be taught. And just the words, teach me, teach me. In verse 33, it says, teach me, O eternal the way of your statutes and i shall keep it to the end mr plea to help me know these things teach me and i will follow this for the remainder of my life all the way to my death verse 108 except i pray the free will offerings of my mouth o eternal and teach me your judgments these free will offerings, praise of thanks, acknowledgement that God's way of life has rendered all kinds of blessings, but also teach me your judgments. Verse 73 Your hands have made me and fashioned me. That's physical and spiritual. You actually designed how the body works. You made me. This human being, and you fashion me accordingly to your own image, but you're also working with me to become like you spiritually. And so he says, You've made me and fashioned me, so please keep doing that. Give me understanding that I may learn your command- commandments. I want to be like you, more than just a physical image. I want to be, I want to have your character. I want to have the mind of Jesus Christ continue making me the kind of person you want me to be and back in verse 66 a little bit earlier the writer says teach me good judgment and knowledge for i believe your commandments i believe what you've said you've given me so his for teach me knowledge also teach me judgment teach me how to make decisions And in one of the sermons that Mr. Weston gave in one of the articles he wrote for the Living Church News, he pointed out that the question, is it okay, is not the right question. You know, God gives us many times, thus saith the Lord. It's very black and white. It's very obvious, Ten Commandments. Do this, don't do that. And yet we are... Asking God as he gives us this knowledge of the absolutes to give us the wisdom and the insight and the discernment to apply that in situations that are a little grayer. There's no clear yes or no. And we learn to make judgment based on our experiences, based on what we see works, and based on the absolutes. So he says, teach me good judgment. Have we ever asked God for that ability to just make good decisions. You know, good choices. Good choices yield good results. And that's what we all want. So we can ask God to give us that, that discernment by giving us good judgment. Then in verse 18, the psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. That reminds me of the sermon again that Mr. McNair gave last week, that sometimes we think about all the bad things that are going on in the world when it says, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, that we should be thinking about the good things. When God's kingdom comes, when Christ returns and sets up that kingdom, then there are going to be lots of good things. We want to dwell on those things. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. What are the good things that result from obeying God's, all of God's commandments and statutes? The things that have resulted in our lives personally, that we ask God to teach us not only the law itself, but to teach us, give us knowledge, and give us judgment from that. All right. point number eight. Point number eight, and this particular section, uh, we'll go over to to, uh, verse 153. I just want to read these seven verses, the first seven out, out of the eight. And the point here is, revive me. Revive me. Have we ever felt that we needed reviving? Again, the scripture I read a moment ago about I'm, I'm like the smoked wineskin. I'm shriveled up spiritually and emotionally. I've been tried, been tested. So they ask the request to God to revive me. Verse 153 says, consider my affliction and deliver me. Again, some of these points overlap. I well understand because you read the next phrase in this particular verse he says for i do not forget your law we just talked about not letting anything deter us from obedience not giving up but consider my affliction and deliver me plead my cause and redeem me revive me according to your word according to the promises that you've given me salvation is far from the wicked for they do not seek your statutes Great are your tender mercies, O Eternal, and revive me according to your judgments. Just refresh me, renew my physical strength, my spiritual strength. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Think about my commitment to you father think about what i what i've sacrificed what i've done to obey you and revive me refresh me o eternal according to your loving kindness we're appealing to one of the basic characteristics of god's nature that he's merciful and we ask him to give us the very special strength that we don't have We ask God to do things that only he can do. There's no one else that understands us as well as Jesus Christ understands us. And he's there representing us and our experiences, our emotions to the Father. And so the Father clearly understands what you and I are experiencing in this life. The good and the difficult. And whether we give prayers of thanks or we make pleas of deliverance and revival. It's according to his loving kindness. We're appealing to his nature of mercy and goodness. All right. Point number nine. And I did make it through nine points. I will make it through nine points. Some of the things we've rehearsed already in some of these verses, but, uh, Again, I want to focus on these things because I, I think these words have special meaning. And you find it so, so much in Psalm 119. And I'm, I've got uh, two and a half pages of verses where these words come, come out in Psalm 119. And yeah, I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, but verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? Well, how can any one of us doesn't matter our age, but for our, some of our young people, many, and, and I'm looking forward to meeting you and and uh, trying my best to remember the names. I've been given this book that has pictures and names, and it'll, you know the test is: Do I remember that when I get here <laughs> and, see, and see you? But how can a young man or anyone cleanse his way? You do that by taking heed according to your word, by studying God's word. God's word cleanses us. In John 15, verse 3, put it in your notes. John 15, verse 3, Christ is talking to the disciples. He says that the study of God's word purifies us. He says, I have the word I've given you, you are clean. So God's word is a purifying agent. We read it. We're reminded of the things that we should do, the things we should say or not say. And if we don't study it regularly, then, yes, we are, as I said earlier, we do forget. But we can cleanse our way by taking heed according to your word. In the book of Proverbs, you read the beginning of it. It talks about reading these Proverbs, that these are ways to become wise. These are Proverbs that will help us be righteous. In verse 28, it says, My soul melts from heaviness strengthen me according to your word going back to the part where it says revive me similar phrasing strengthen me according to your word that not only are the words there that tell me what's right and what's wrong but that you promised to strengthen me please do that verses 49 and 50 he says remember the word to your servant Upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Your word gives us life. It adds meaning to our life, but it also gives us hope for deliverance and hope for God's kingdom. Comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. Verse 101, we read earlier, it says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. Telling us there that you and I can choose to obey. We can use God's spirit to give us the strength to do. We get this thought in the back of our mind that says, I should do this or I should not. Do something that we call upon God to help us follow that spiritual inspiration. I restrain my feet from every way that I may keep your word. In other words, I have chosen to follow your instructions. Verse 133. Pretty strong verse. It direct to my steps by your word. To light to our path we read earlier so direct my steps by your path and let no iniquity have dominion over me don't let anything control my life become a dominant influence over in the book of Romans chapter 6 and just again put in your notes verses 13 14 and then 17 through 20 In verse 22, where Paul talks about before we gave our lives to God, and he called us and gave us understanding that we were slaves to sin. And we are to become slaves of righteousness. Slaves of God, bondservants of Jesus Christ, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. We do not want to be a slave to what's wrong. Direct my paths by your word. Give me this light. Give me this discernment so that I make the right choices and get the desired results from obeying you and serving you. So those are the nine points. Let's turn to the last section as we move to a close here in verse 169. And I'm going to read this entire section because I think that this last section, and the Hebrew word is taw, I believe it's pronounced. I think this last section is a fairly good summary of the entire Psalm. And you'll see some of these same phrases come out in this particular section. Verse sixty nine or one sixty-nine says, Let my cry come before you, O eternal. And give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. These promises you've given us. And my lips shall utter praise. I'll give you prayers of thanks. I will glorify your name. I will give you the honor and the reverence to which you're due. My lips shall utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue shall speak of your word, and we read this earlier, for all your commandments are righteousness. He said, I'm going to talk about your Bible, about your word, because it's all good. All the laws commandments are holy and just and good and its great core of conversation. Let your hand become my help, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O eternal, physical deliverance, as well as a spiritual inheritance that we'll have when Christ returns. And your law is my delight. I just revel in understanding your word and and obeying you. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you. And let your judgments help me. Let me, but give me the strength to do these things and help me. Let my soul live, and I'll praise you. And let your judgments help me. And we come to the last verse, verse 176. Now, I think there's a little bit of irony here because I've just read a, a whole bunch of scripture. I do realize that <laughs> I've just read a whole bunch of scriptures. Where David or the psalmist said, look, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm not going to give up. I am not going to stop serving you. It does not matter who my persecutors are. Even to the point, as he says, my life is always in danger. And I won't let that deter me from obeying you. And then he says in verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's a great contrast to all those scriptures we just went through. The writer recognizes that despite all of my good intentions, I also continue to have failings. I come up short I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And again, Mr. Dr. Meredith would refer to that. It's important we seek God. But the phrase here, notice this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Come, find me. When I'm lost, when I'm coming up short, don't forget me. Come and help me. And he adds, though, because I don't forget your commandments. I am your servant. Come find me, because I am not going to quit. So come help me. There are all kinds of lessons to be learned out of this particular psalm. Hopefully, it's been helpful. I suppose the uh, one other lesson in general that from this process, we listen to a sermon and we get this suggestion to do something, the <laughs> lesson would be do it. <laughs> Take the time to do it. Take the time to follow the instruction to which we are all shared. We have a wealth of information available to us today Uh, Mr. DeSimone and I were talking yesterday afternoon that you talk about. We we have the singles, young, married group and Bible studies, and we have clubs, and we have the Internet, and there's just an almost immeasurable amount of information available to us where we can listen to it. And when something resonates and stirs us and we're giving something to do, think about Psalm 119, and let's just do it.